Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to This Being Human. I'm your host, Abdurrahman Malik. On this podcast, I talk to extraordinary people from all over the world whose life, ideas, and art are shaped by Muslim culture. I felt the power of this word, of the, the language that I was working on, but it felt like something that was very familiar and very new at the same time. Today, the man who brought Rumi to the masses, Coleman Barks. It still surprises me that in 2023, one of the most famous poets in the world is a Sufi mystic and religious scholar who lived in the 13th century. As I've discussed on the show before, Jalaluddin Rumi's poetry is everywhere, not just in books, but on coffee mugs, bumper stickers, Coldplay songs, and all over Instagram. It's even in the title of this podcast. The spiritual power of Rumi's words speak directly to the human condition. It's universal because it's concerned with us, our joys and our hurts, our beauty and our ugliness. Rumi isn't afraid to leap into our contradictions. But Rumi was writing in Farsi. Somehow his words had to make their way into a language that makes sense to us. Enter Coleman Barks. Coleman Barks wasn't the first to translate or interpret Rumi into English, but there was something about his Rumi that ignited the imagination of readers all over the world. Coleman is in some ways an unlikely candidate for the job. He's from Tennessee and he doesn't even speak Farsi. And yet growing up, we had multiple copies of Coleman Barks's essential Rumi around our house because all the members of my family were invariably reaching for it. The interpretations in those pages spoke to me. My faith, my search for a thread that tied ritual, theology, and my sense of being Muslim together. Coleman Barks brought Rumi alive for me. He was the gate through which I entered Rumi's universe, and for that, I'm forever grateful. Coleman is 86 years old now. His speech is a bit shaky and slurred, at times hard to understand. But his mind remains sharp, and as you'll hear, when he reads a passage of poetry, his language becomes focused. He joined me from his home in Athens, Georgia, for a long overdue conversation. Now, shall I call you AR? Absolutely. That is totally good. Friends call me AR, and I, I'd be honored to be considered your friend. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll give it a try. <laughs> <laughs> Coleman Barks was surrounded by ideas from a young age. I grew up on a prep school campus, and so all of my every meal with was 400 people, and my father's headmaster. So you understand. When you, uh, the headmaster's son, 
to have any credibility with the, your friends, you know. You have to have, have a criminal side. He began to write around the age of 13. Free verse poem poems. It was just journal entries, really. The first subject was uh, catching the lightning bugs <laughs> in a little jar, you know. Uh, we put it in a little jar, and then, uh, as everybody knows, the, the lightning bugs in the jar, they start, they sort of synchronizing, and they all, they all light up together, and then they all turn black and die, you know, and smell bad, you know. And then, so they go, it's a little metaphor for the, a folly of collecting things, <laughs> perhaps. Over the years, he became more involved in poetry and the poetry scene. He won some prizes, first at school and then nationally. He's not exactly humble about his talents. I have a, a kind of a inflated sense of self-worth. I've been told by psychologists, you know, that I won my mother too easily from my father. I was the favorite child, you know, and uh, I was her favorite. So, uh, and, and so acknowledged so by the whole family. <laughs> the celebrated American poet Robert Bly was a friend of Coleman's and someone he admired intensely. One fateful day, Bly handed him a book of Rumi translations. He told Coleman that these poems needed to be released from their cages. They handed me these translation by A.J. Arbery. He handed me this uh, stack of books, you know, and he says, these need to be released. So I've spent 40 years in trying to do the, that assignment. <laughs> what cages were those poems in that they needed to be released? The uh, uh, language of the Cambridge Islamicists, A.J. Arbery and uh, Reynold Nicholson, who were brilliant guys, uh, but they weren't poets in the free verse tradition that uh, is uh, America's gift to the world, from Walt Whitman to many others. We've given the world uh, this idiom that uh, can say a spiritual searching in the terms that uh, it never has been put before. Did you notice, uh, sort of, as you were reading Rumi and releasing Rumi from those cages of sort of stiltifying language, did you feel you were channeling poets like Whitman? Did you feel Whitman there in Rumi's meaning and message? Oh, I don't know about channeling, yeah, but uh, I, I certainly used my knowledge of... Uh, American free verse and the the idiom there and the language and the the lack of uh, any rhyme scheme you know Rumi will rhyme uh, in Persian will uh, rhyme eight twelve lines in a row you know but if you do that in English the third line becomes a, li a limerick it becomes a joke the third rhyme is a joke in English. Yeah, that's an extreme way to put it, but uh, I think it's almost true. After that meeting with Robert Bly, Coleman went to a coffee shop in Athens, Georgia, 
and got to work. Immediately, it felt natural. I didn't even have any paper with me. I had a pen, but I didn't have paper. So uh, maybe I used a napkin, but I think I used the bill. But it felt like something that was very familiar and very new at the same time. It felt very good. And it was like, this is going to be my what I do with my life. As I was doing it, I felt the power of these words, of the, the language that I, I was working on, you know. I was always intrigued to know more about Coleman's process. How did a non-Persian speaker do what he did? Coleman explained that a Persian scholar and collaborator would send him new verses in the mail. He could barely wait to get his hands on them. My favorite thing was to go to the mailbox, you know, and get the new car trains and open them and it's work on them immediately, you know. So, yeah, it's a great privilege and, and uh, excitement for me. His translations took off in a way that was almost unfathomable. Before long, books attributed to a 13th century Persian poet were among the most popular poetry books in America. When I ask Coleman what it is about Rumi that makes him resonate so much, he doesn't overcomplicate it. It's about Rumi's mastery of language. He's able to make it uh, fresh like uh, each day is fresh. I'm sure you've been asked this many times before because the process by which you were engaging with Rumi's words is so fascinating. You don't speak Farsi and you're getting these scholarly translations, and then you're working this incredible alchemy and working them into this powerful free verse. You're engaging with Rumi, and what results out of it, I think to myself, you know, how much did Coleman Barks feel that he left there in those interpretations of Rumi's words? I'm sure in some ways it's an alchemy that can never be separated. You can't separate Coleman Barks from Rumi, and, and we shouldn't separate Coleman Barks from Rumi, but I imagine you thought about that a lot. Well, not so much. I don't, I don't understand about word choices and, and uh, why certain simple phrases are powerful and work in that way, and others don't quite work as well. That's just uh, inherent in the beauty and the magic of the American idiom we've been given, that lively field to play in, you know. American free verse is just love the world over, and it's translated into every language, you know. As you saw Rumi's popularity, in a way, take off, and, and you must have begun to see your interpretations, your your translations appear in all kinds of strange and interesting places, you know, in, in Coldplay songs, on coffee mugs, on bumper stickers. What was it like to watch that happen? And, and did it ever kind of bother you? It didn't feel like it was ever uh, in danger of becoming, uh, you know, made uh, meaningless by currency. So it, that didn't bother me. I accepted that, you know, Madonna you know, loves Rumi 
a lot of people are famous people just love him you know? a lot of people are helping sales <laughs> so i accept that i cash the royalty checks you know <laughs> you know i i it's so interesting you say that because i and this is what i'm feeling as i'm hearing you coleman that the passage of Rumi into our time and into our lives needs to happen according to our time and our lives. And I think the power and the enduring power of Rumi is Rumi's ability to find itself onto the bumper stickers and onto the Instagram pages and be a way of just nurturing people. Yeah, they say that that's, uh, that's the way he functions and. You know, in India, you know, he's like a friend. I think it's important to pause and address something here. In recent years, there's been a lot of discussion about whether Coleman Barks's interpretations of Rumi stripped Mevlana of the religious faith that anchored him. A 2017 New Yorker article called it the erasure of Islam from the poetry of Rumi. I've loved Coleman Barks's Rumi for most of my adult life, and I also get what the critics are saying. When I asked Coleman about whether he ever dreamed of Rumi, he answered with something else, and it helped me understand how he was engaging with Rumi's essential Muslimness. Here's the dream he told me about. Dreams have been very, very important to me uh, in my life. And I had a, an important dream, May 2nd, 1977. I grew up right by the Tennessee River on a bluff above the river. And uh, in the dream, I was sleeping out on the bluff. I've never slept out on the bluff, but uh, I was doing that in a sleeping bag. And, and uh, I looked across the river and to Williams Island, beautiful place, and uh, a ball of light rose off the island, and uh, there was someone sitting inside the ball of light. He had his head bowed, and he raised his head, and he looked at, straight at me, and he said, I love you. And I said, I love you too. And I was so glad I said that. But the whole atmosphere filled with a kind of moisture. It was the time of night when the dew was forming and the exchange between us seemed to be part of that dew. And the dew was love. So all the wetness in the world was love. And then a year and a half later, I met the man in that ball of light. Here in a Philadelphia room upstairs. He's sitting there on his bed. I started telling him the dream, you know, and he said, finally he said, you don't need to tell me the dream, I was there. The man he's speaking about is his spiritual teacher, Bawa Mohyuddin, a Sri Lankan Sufi guide and Islamic scholar who lived outside Philadelphia. It was to Bawa that he often turned to gauge whether his interpretations of Rumi were in keeping with the spirit of the original text. He just kept telling me, you know, this is all about love, you know. And he would tell me, 
thought I was doing things that I shouldn't, couldn't do, you know. If you didn't catch that, Coleman is saying that he would take his interpretations to Bawa. Bawa would help him understand Rumi and sometimes would tell him when he wasn't getting it right. One of the last things he told me is he says, you know, I know Rumi and Shams Tabriz not like people in a book. He looked at me and said, I know them like I know you. Most outrageous compliment I've ever received in my life. I interviewed Coleman remotely. Behind him, I could see books piled high, shelves overflowing, loose pages scattered over the desks. Coleman admits that he gets tired, that he's creaky and a bit absent-minded, and yet he still works on Rumi every day. Some gravitational pull brings him back. So it was almost fitting that while I came to speak to him about Rumi, Coleman kept bringing the conversation back to someone else, Shams Tabriz. The enigmatic Shams was Rumi's teacher, friend, and mentor. But above all else, Shams was a theological disruptor. Shams was the one who pushed Rumi towards deeper, more provocative spiritual explorations. He questioned Rumi's assumptions, challenged his religious knowledge, and poked fun at his piety. Shams wanted Rumi to not just speak about things divine, but to really know the divine. His friendship for Shams, of course, is uh, he called one of his books of, of works of Shams to praise, implying that uh, without Shams' presence, the poetry wouldn't exist. The beginning of Coleman's deep engagement with Shams starts once again with a dream. In his dream, he's visited by a friend the late American poet, Galway Cannell. The dream I had with Galway, he was directing me with his arm in the air and directing me to the mouth of a cave. Above the cave in letters of fire, it says, Rasa Sam Shamsi Tabriz, the essence of Shams Tabriz. And so uh, I went up there into the cave mouth and there was a little chair on the floor there. Uh, it's like a, sort of a framework of a chair. But he's sitting there, and uh, somebody was to sit on the left and some on the right. And uh, evidently, Shams was to sit in the chair itself. And all around the cave, there were little niches, and people were very beautiful, elderly people were sitting there in deep stages of meditation. So it felt like the most, the holiest place I've ever been in, in dream or out. And uh, I felt very privileged to be shown that by Galway and uh, to be led into that place and uh, just be shown the chair of Shams. Coleman took this as a sign after the dream, he began to work on a new interpretation of the sayings of Shams Tabriz. It's called soul fury, which is uh, his word for a kind of an intensity that must find expression of soul fury, that is something that has to come out. 
and the human being. Maybe I should read you some of the uh, passages from Shams' sayings. I would love that, Coleman. I would love it. Just a second. Take your time, Coleman. Okay, thank you. I'm like an absent-minded professor just fumbling through his text here. Here's one. I swear to God, I'm not able to really know, Rumi. There's no false modesty or deception in my saying this. Every day I learn things about his state and his actions that were not there yesterday. He is so alive and in motion that I kind of know him. He has a beautiful face and presence, and he speaks eloquent words. But do not be satisfied with those. There's something beyond the form and the words, beyond his face and his poetry. Try to seek that something from him. He never says what that something is. But uh, those who yearn to be in his presence to sit with him, many of those are saints, but they are wanting to hear the public self, that which I am calling his hypocrisy. Strong word for your best friend to say about you. <laughs> that which I am calling his hypocrisy, but not the core truth of his being. I'm unable to know Rumi because his words are like a blindfold. I cannot see through them to his eyes and know who he is. Shams is saying this. His poetry is like that, really. A great joke, really. Hilarious. A mask. A new kind of conjuring. Let me say this clearly. Hypocrisy makes you ecstatic. Good gracious. Wow. Wow. I think he's saying there's something in ecstasy that is a little bit fake. Yes. Let me say this clearly. Hypocrisy makes you ecstatic, drunken, with the presence you feel. Truth makes you sad, discouraged, empty. Isn't that beautiful? Those are remarkable lines, Coleman. Yeah. Those should be put in stone somewhere. (laughs) I'll read you just a little bit more here. Please. Remy has said many times that he is more compassionate, more sympathetic with people than I am. He is so happy in his ecstatic state that when someone falls in deep water or into a fire or into hell, Rumi holds his chin in his hand and gazes at the situation (laughs) with kind eyes. He does not jump into the water or the fire. He does not go down into hell and gaze with kindness. I have that gaze too, but I also grab the one in danger by the seat of his pants and pull him out. Come on out, brother. You too should be gazing in this way. <laughs> <laughs> what I do, I, don't you feel the freshness of the man? You know, he's something new in mysticism. Shemps feels undeniably current. It seems to be Coleman's gift. He crafts the meanings into words that speak to us in our messy, present condition. Coleman hasn't moved on from Rumi, though. The translations remain his life's work. I still try to work on it every day. 
Like Ahab pursuing the whale, Coleman Bark still has his eyes set on Rumi's Masnavi, an epic mystical text made of 50,000 lines of poetry spread over six books. It's one of the fundamental texts of Sufism and a daunting project. I think that will eventually kill me. <laughs> I'll die doing the masterpiece. <laughs> uh, happily. <clears throat> How would the world be different today without the work of Rumi? They're less fun. <laughs> <laughs> just being, he's just being in a body and conscious is cause for rapture. That has always seemed true to me as a child. You know, I would lay on the floor and hug myself. And I'd say, Mother, I got, Mama, I got this full feeling again. He says, I know you do, honey. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's the kind of family I grew up in, you know. That's beautiful. Yeah. We owe you a great a great debt. I owe you a great debt. I can't speak for anyone anyone else. And I wonder, what does it mean to be a poet in this moment of human history and civilization? We're facing climate catastrophe, and our nation is riven with fault lines. There seems to be so much more misunderstanding at times, and yet those pernicious you know, aspects of the human condition continue to ravage us. What does it mean to be a poet in a time like, like today? It was uh, healing to me. It's like being a, a doctor in an emergency situation. Huh? That's maybe a little extreme, but it, it does feel like that. That's not extreme at all, Coleman. That is that is powerful. A little self-aggrandizement. <laughs> Coleman Barks, can you tell me about a joy or a meanness that has come to you recently as an unexpected visitor? Uh-huh. That's the visitor that came today was my actually going to this Soul Fury book that I hadn't looked at him in a while and loving it again and just finding all those passages in. Yeah, but anyway, thank you, A.R. Thank you so much, Coleman. It has been such an honor to have you on this Being Human. A lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to This Being Human. Coleman Barks' translations of Rumi are widely available. If you haven't read any of them before, I'd suggest that you start with The Essential Rumi or Delicious Laughter. In this episode, Coleman Barks reads from his collection Soul Fury, Rumi and Shems Tabriz on Friendship. Later this week, the Aga Khan Museum will be launching a major exhibit on the life and legacy of Rumi. It opens on May 13th and runs until October 1st. This Being Human is produced by Antica Productions in partnership with TVO. 
Our senior producer is Kevin Sexton. Our associate producer is Haley Choi. Our executive producer is Lisa Gabriel. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica Productions. Mixing and sound design by Phil Wilson. Original music by Boombox Sound. Shagayeg Tajvidi is TVO's managing editor of digital video and podcasts. Lori Few is the executive for digital at TVO. This Being Human is generously supported by the Aga Khan Museum. Through the arts, the Aga Khan Museum sparks wonder, curiosity, and understanding of Muslim cultures and their connection with other cultures. For more information about the museum, go to www.agakhanmuseum.org. The museum wishes to thank the Hillary and Galen Weston Foundation for their generous support of This Being Human.